Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we are three friends who haven't talked in a full month as it's a group on this podcast. Been so long. Yeah, the group chat got lit up a couple of times, but always whenever I was, of course, deadly busy with something else. <laughs> and that's what I'm sticking to. I do consult my uh, haunted snow globe to see what you're doing in your condo uh, when I decide to blow up the group chat just so your hands are tied and you can't jump in. That's good. Did Did you look at my list of what I've watched since we met last? I'm scared to ask. Okay. I know that the last time we actually talked wasn't even on this podcast. It was on Allie's sister pod where we talked about peppermint flavored cum. Yes. And uh, a Christmas time fuck sesh between a Yeti and a... I can't remember the other a Krampus and <laughs> a Krampus, a Krampus. and a human lady. Klaus the Krampus. Yeah, Klaus the Krampus. And Holly the journalist. Yeah. So check out Plot is Optional if you want to hear more about... Smut. Yeah, non-cinematic smut. I mean, usually we talk about horny movies on here, but that time we talked about a horny ebook. Yeah. Slightly different. I am so envious that you can forget any details from it. I took notes, I read it twice, and yet I forgot one of the main monsters in that book. <laughs> yeah. That's totally fine. I really enjoyed doing that. I've already listened to that episode twice myself um, during this long period of time since we last spoke. So, um, yeah, it it gets a recommendation from me, who is also a participant. And on top of that, uh, Boomer, you started a second project? <gasps> yes. On top of your normal writing schedule? Yeah. I, I sure did. Uh, I Many years ago, uh, DC decided to start producing direct-to-DVD at the time, animated features, um, right around 2007, uh, the same year that Marvel put out Iron Man, which is uh, very interesting because since then there have been so many Marvel movies and the many ups and downs of that and the way that uh, those films have contributed to um destroyed the market how they have had their own ups and downs and i kept up with the dc animated releases for a while because that was back when i still had a netflix by dvd subscription and in fact there was a, a point in the production of those where uh those films specifically started to affect the way that netflix's production model went because warner brothers desperately wanted people to buy these dvds rather than getting them through netflix to the point where it introduced um the potential for them to file suit for netflix to like wait a certain period of time after the production of the dvds that these movies were on before they would allow them to be uh rented via their dvd by mail service um haven't written about that at all yet but that is what i'm doing i did the calculations and there are about 52 of them um depending on whether you count mask of the phantasm and then one of them is like a constantine movie that was originally released as like a series of webisodes and then put into a movie so like everything's everything about comic books um how many there are and how long they ran and all of that is is a bit of a continuity you know snarl it's all snarled up and i'm not unsnarling anything but i am going through them one by one and we're sort of doing it as a weekly series on the site where um i watch one of these movies and then i do a review of it and briefly talk about the market at that time um so far i have watched seven of these to completion and written seven of the reviews or written yeah six or seven of the reviews because i do want to (laughs) before i committed to this when i first messaged brandon about it a few weeks back i was like i want to make sure that i have enough in the can 
that you know if something were to happen if i get bored with these and want to take like a couple of weeks off that i have like the um sort of cushion the publishing cushion to do so but i think the first two have gone live Brandon. yes uh also the series has a name and if you click on the features page on swampflix.com it has its own separate page grouping them uh numerically as well Yes, it's called the Not-So-New 52, um, which refers to the fact that uh, when I saw that there were about 52 of these movies, I was like, oh, that's the same number of weeks in a year. And, of course, the number 52 ties into a lot of DC Comics mythology after they had their quote-unquote New 52 reboot back in, I want to say, 2011, which was long after I had really stopped paying attention to like actual comic books, simply because, uh, you know, there were multiple back-to-back big event comics that just really soured me on the whole thing to where i actually you know called my local comic book store and was like i don't have i want to cancel my pull list i don't want you pulling comics for me at this point i'm not going to come in and pick them up anymore it was a real uh, end of that era for me that's a harsh breakup it was yeah wow and you know what um it was after the marvel comics civil war event and it was that was followed by um some sort of like scroll event which is i think what that scroll show that everybody hated was based on so um i feel vindicated by history at least on that front a very uh it's not me it's you moment yeah yeah (laughs) so i think superman doomsday and new frontier have both posted at this point um you'll see the postings for gotham knight and wonder woman coming out eventually uh, as well as Superman, Batman, Public Enemies, and Justice League Crisis on Two Earths. Those have all... Uh, oh, and uh, I'm sorry, Green Lantern First Flight. Those have all been composed. They are ready for publication. Um, and then the next one after that is Batman Under the Red Hood, which is one that we actually discussed say, as a movie of the month. This is one of the ones that we, we've discussed, right? Like, we've, we've done one of these. I'm surprised, yeah. actually, looking at the list, uh, that... Over the years, I mean, we've been doing Swamp Flex for a while now. I've reviewed, including the Under the Red Hood, about eight or nine of these total. And I don't particularly feel plugged into this, like, comic book universe. I think anytime, like, there's an animated Batman movie with uh, a sense of, like, novelty art direction, I get sucked into it <laughs> without even really thinking. I, I'm glad that to hear that, you know, we have had that at some point, that it has come up um in our our many years of of having done this yeah under the red hood ali we did watch that one for the month feature um do you remember your thoughts on it i mean i just remember being like i really don't like batman but i remember that one being like i always think that the cartoon ones are more fun just like generally like you know i talked about recently how i had watched rewatched all of the nolan ones like very like over the summer and how I was just like, I don't know, they're not great. Those are pretty dour, but like, I mean, I feel like you're just about to say this and I just jumped yeah. in your way, but like the cartoon ones still will throw back to those Adam West era yeah. um, shtick sometimes. Um, I saw one that was like an anime style one called Batman Ninja that I really liked. Uh, most recently, I watched Batman versus the Ninja Turtles. Oh, like, they, they have yeah. a kind of campy tinge to it, you know? I'm not sure if that's going to be part of this project. I can't recall <laughs> at the moment. Um, but we'll, we'll find out when we but get there. But I don't remember if at the time I was positive or negative. I know that I have watched quite a few of these. Like, I had a very Batman-obsessed friend for a while. Um, but yeah, I 
I always think like I'm always gonna like cartoons better because I think on the inside I still just wanna have like my bowl of like Fruit Loops and sit down on the couch with cartoons like constantly. Yeah, Batman the animated series is a pretty high watermark for that entire for franchise. Real. Very much so, very much so. And some of these movies actually spun out of projects that were meant to be part of that Batman Justice League like cartoon universe or whatever. Yeah, and... the Justice League cartoon I liked as a kid, so you know I probably have seen yeah. more than I think, but. I, I will say, I said it before and I'll say it again, Under the Red Hood is my favorite Batman movie, um, even more so than any of the live action adaptations. Among the live action adaptations, I think I think it goes to Batman Returns because I'm a freak. Well, Ditto. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I know that I'm in good company among, among this group. I'm sure that yep. that's not an uncommon opinion around here. And I did even think about, like, do I even need to rewatch Under the Red Hood at this point? I've seen it so many times. And then one night I came home and I was like, well, maybe I'll just start it and watch the first 10 minutes and finish it tomorrow. And of course, I watched the whole thing that night. I love it so much. It's so good. That one and the one that comes right before it are both weirdly nihilistic. You know, there's this line. You've got Kevin Conroy doing Batman again, like he did for the animated series. He does that in a lot of these movies, and it lends a lot of them more gravitas than some of them deserve. Um, And in this one, you know, he has this line about like, Uh, He's talking about Jason Todd, the second Robin, who dies at the beginning of the movie uh, in sort of a flashback sequence. It's like partially an adaptation of that Death in the Family comic. And he says says his line about, you know, uh, my soldier, my boy, my fault, you know, and it's just there's something about it. It has such gravitas and pathos in a way that like only Kevin Conroy could do. Uh, the animation, like you were saying, Ali, it really opens it up to like not having to be so realistic, you know, which is pro- a problem of all of like the live action comic book adaptations is that, you know, especially during that era when the Nolan movies were the watermark of how to make those, you know, how to make a superhero film. They, of course, made everything seem very down to earth and gave everything a realistic expe- or explanation which I think, you know, the, the animation, they can just be like, yeah, I can do whatever. We can, whatever you can imagine, whatever you can draw, that's what we can put on screen. And I think it's a lot better for it. But yeah, uh, before we got on mic earlier, dear listeners, I was talking about how I had 20, 20 movies to discuss uh, since it had been so long since we all met each other. But luckily, um, a solid eight of those were those DC movies. So that's out of the way. Let's run through my Christmas watching. Um, my best friend, she wanted to do uh, sort of a Christmas movie marathon this year. Um, and not, I did not get to participate in all of them. But the reason I was asking if you had gotten access to my list somehow, Brandon, was that I did see for the first time on December 9th, Krampus. Oh, great. We just talked about it on the pod, too. Nice. Which is what I assume you were referencing when you were talking about the snow globe with my condo in it that you check in on. <laughs> Probably why it was on my mind. Uh, our friend Pete from We Love to Watch was on an episode recently where we talked about um, little Christmas killers. So like movies like Gremlins or any movies with like evil toys that right. like come alive yes. on Christmas. And I, I brought up Krampus on that episode and I hadn't forgotten how much of that movie was about Krampus's little helpers. And like, there's a bunch of little tiny killing, like Charles Band style dolls in that movie. That was, I think, my favorite element was all of the weird little monsters and their horrible eldritch mouths. Killer toys is always something that's fun. 
And of course, you know, having just learned about um, Krampus's prehensile dick from the book that we read for <laughs> Ali's podcast, I couldn't take Krampus as seriously as a villain. I was like, when is he going to fuck a, a sports reporter lady? When is he going to talk about peppermint cum? But the toys managed to keep my interest. And I think that Adam Scott, um, actually, this is one of his better performances because I'm not a huge fan of his. I know that a, a lot of people love Party Down, which I've never seen, and I know that I need to, but like life is short. You would love that show. I, I, yeah. I know that I would, probably. But I also have friends who like they hate Adam Scott, and I don't understand the hate. Uh, I think that he is really great as the um, bedraggled father in this one, having to put up with his in-laws or, or maybe it's his family. I forget. Um, the guy who plays his obnoxious brother-in-law is fantastic. Yes, I, I, I thought it was him. And then I had a moment where I was like, his name wasn't coming to me. And I didn't want to just be like, you know, the uh, sports reporter from uh, Anchorman. Yeah, because then you would think I was talking about Holly and whether or not the Krampus was going to fuck David Koechner. Wait, how have we not mentioned the name of this book, by the way? It's called Monster Pucker, yeah. if you're looking for that. If you're looking for uh, an unhinged holiday smut book, well, I did a whole month of them, so check it out. Uh, it's a little out of season, though, so I, I, I recommend waiting a year, personally. <laughs> and, or, you know, you could have yourself a little Christmas in July, um, if that's sort of what you're into. Uh, I'll say we watch The Muppets Christmas Carol, which we do every year. I still love so it did I. every time. Uh, what were your thoughts on this most recent viewing? I don't know. It was just very warm and it had like a kind of snowballing effect where when it was over, I just wanted more and more Muppet content. So I ended up watching the Sesame Street nice. Christmas special and then the Muppet Christmas special where they're like snowed in at that house. Not the Emmett Otter one, but the one where <gasps> the like there's this big, big party. Muppet family Christmas. Sorry. Yeah. Emmett yeah. Otter's Jug Band Christmas Ugh. Yes, I love it. If I had time, it would have been that one. But you know, we watched three Muppet specials in a row on Christmas night, and uh, it was a great, warm feeling. Um, I cried, I think, the most at the Sesame Street one, which I did not expect because you know it's for children. But uh, there were like a couple moments that really got me in that one. Um, otherwise, I was just laughing and had a good time. What version do you watch? Do you what? like where do you where do you watch it? <laughs> do, you How watch do you watch the it? Uh, televised version or the cinematic version? Is what he's asking. I don't know. I watched it on whatever streaming service had it for free. Okay. I was subscribed to. Uh, was it Disney Plus? Definitely not. Okay, then I have no idea where you streamed it. But the only way that you can tell is, is there a really long, um, love, boring uh, love, love ballad? Yeah. Uh, during the Christmas pa- past section where um, Scrooge and Belle sing to each other? No. Okay. okay. I didn't see that. So it's interesting. I have a DVD of it, and the DVD has both versions, which is how I even learned there was a second version. Because growing up, right. like I had the VHS copy, and it only had the version with the song. Yes, the same here. Where for many years, every year we watched my VHS copy, and we would always fast forward through the song. It was one of our. It was part of our Christmas tradition that as soon as the song starts to play, you fast forward through it. It is really <laughs> out of place. It is. This is reminding me of there's a meme going around right now about people sharing stories about going to see the Mean Girls, the musical in theaters. And every time a new song starts, people start booing and groaning in the theater. <laughs> good for them. It's so good. Um, this, this, okay, so the song is really out of place, specifically because every other song has like Muppets in it, right? It's a yeah, Muppets and it's movie. Like, it's fun. It's upbeat. Or it's like... 
dark and like when the cold wind blows it chills you chills you yeah. to a bone like there's a lot of jaunty jaunt to it but this one is so slow and like it's a yeah it's a love ballad it's just between Belle and young scrooge who are characters that you know like we barely know anything about her now people who are musical pilled i guess is what we'll call them they much prefer the version with the song in it the vhs version because the late motif from that song in a minor key plays again later in a major key it does. as like the final song of the movie it does and i am here to say that doesn't matter yeah you should watch the version without that sequence and if it's in there you should fast forward through it or just follow your heart i'm not your dad but yeah uh, it, the the version on Disney Plus currently is the one that has the song edited out, and I don't know where else it would be streaming. Hulu, probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, and then there were two more Christmas movies we watched. One was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is kind of a a, a not normal Christmas choice. Uh, do we know this movie? Are y'all familiar with this one at all? Isn't that a guy? I know it's a Richie? Shane Black no, joint. No, no, it's not. Okay. Yeah, Shane Black, who sets most of his movies at Christmas for reasons that no one can really fully discern. Um, but yeah. I haven't seen it. For marketing it in theaters? I don't know. That's why I would do it. <laughs> I People have talked about how funny this movie is and how great it is for a long time. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. I didn't realize that was set at Christmas. We can watch that. I'm down. And while it is very funny and it is very clever, uh, the editing is clever, the jokes are funny, I- I'm going to go ahead and say right now, it is a very 2005 movie and so far as like just how much casual homophobia there is that's not shocking yeah val kilmer plays a character named gay perry um which is like i guess a play on gay perry there's a lot of funny stuff going on with multiple characters having read this same uh cheapy pulp vintage detective series which you know that speaks to my heart but then every time someone turned around and used a slur, I was like, oh, right. This movie is from 2005. It ha- That element of it has aged very poorly in a way where I can't even really give it a major recommendation, even as much as I enjoyed it, because like, holy shit. It's like when you, you know, uh, not to compare the struggles or anything, but it's like whenever you watch a movie from the 60s or 70s and they use like you know, very casual racist language, like, you know, calling black men boy and shit like that. It's like, oh my God, where it really just takes you out of it. So I, I don't, I don't care for that element of it. Again, it's not exactly the same. The struggles are not the same. I'm just uh, making a comparison to how shocking it is to hear. Shane Black can be like that. He's very broy. Like I grew up loving Monster Squad, but even that one has. Oh like, a yeah, few, Monster like, Squad is sort of like there. yeah, they got they got some slurs in there. It's like, it's unfortunate because it, you know, without that, it's a perfectly fun movie. But right, and then most recently, the one that pissed me off from him, I really liked the Nice Guys. I thought that was pretty well balanced as far as that tone goes. But then he made that Predator sequel. Oh yeah, I heard. No. I never saw it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's atrocious. It's mm. like it's it's like he wrote it in 2005 and just got it produced in the 2020s. Like there's something about it that felt very dated in a very broy way. Gross. Gross. Yeah, gross. Um and then the final Christmas movie that I saw over the holiday uh was The Holdovers, which I gave a a very glowing recommendation to in my writing about it. It did end up on my top 20 list of uh, this past year, which went out a couple of weeks ago. You can find it on the site. Um, I, I, I trust that you're able to navigate it. It's not very difficult. You can find it. And 
yeah, I love this one very much. Um, I ended up putting uh, Dominic Sessa, uh, Divine Joy Randolph, and uh, Paul Giamatti on my fake Academy ballot that we posted as well. Um, I love a boarding school movie. I love a boarding school movie. And it's not just because I went to one, because I was really into them even before I was invited to participate in, the, in a magnet boarding school. Um, this one I would put up there with uh, The Hairy Bird. And as far as like, maybe not necessarily boarding school set uh, movies, but as far as just like movies about boys coming of age in a school environment, I would also uh, compare this one a little bit to The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, although without some of the life-threatening danger that occurs in that movie. Um, while we're on the topic, Brandon, did you already talk the holdovers to death as much as you want to? I mean, there was a recent episode of the pod. The last Lanyard podcast episode was about the holdovers. It was me and Bill. But don't be confused, listeners. When he, when he says Lanyap in this in this instance, it does not <laughs> include me or Allie. Yeah, I was going to say, we were not Lanyapped. I licensed the brand outside of the company. As, I, uh... <laughs> as you were allowed to do as the boss man. I should be using like, um, you know, like when Credence Clearwater like split up and they had like oh, yeah! one that was like the Credence Clearwater and one was like CCR. Or, or, or like, like Black that. Flag. You can just have flag. Yeah, yeah. There's like sub brands. <laughs> oh my God. Look, I'm just trying to deliver weekly content through the holidays, through the award season. You know, I'm just trying to keep an even keel no, out there. Yeah, yeah. We're, I'm pro. Fair enough. <laughs> I liked that movie more than I expected to, though. I guess it's the the big picture idea. Like, I thought it was going to be kind of a corny 70s kitsch throwback to, like, that Hal Ashby era, and it's not not that, but right. it was still very <laughs> enjoyable. It is It is very much that. <laughs> I, Which I is think... interesting, because, like, I think if you said that to me, I'd be like, oh, wow, I should watch it, because I love Hal Ashby movies. <laughs> if you like Hal Ashby and you like Rushmore, you will most likely like the whole Okay, yeah. well, I will probably love it then, and I should watch it. Allie, you, you definitely should. I, I mean, you may have to wait until Christmas, <laughs> just along with... Um, what is it called? Mighty Fucks? Mega Puckers? Monster, Monster Fuckers? Pucker. Monster Pucker. Uh, maybe you'll have to wait until Christmas, but I, I definitely think you should check it out. Yeah. Um, there were two other, uh, I guess, um, several other 2023 releases that I watched since then that I will just breeze through since most of these I did write-ups about. Uh, first up, I'm going to say Dream Scenario. Good. Really good. I enjoyed that one quite a lot. I really appreciated um, Nicolas Cage's performance in it. I loved it as one of those, like, as much as I love a woman under the influence movie, it's like, I guess, um, distaff counterpoint or diurnal counterpoint or whatever you would call it um, in the form of, like, man loses everything for reasons out of his control. Like, anxiety horror movies like this and, like, a lot of Kaufman movies, which I referenced in my um, review of it, I really enjoyed this one. I would give it a big recommendation, even though it ended up kind of closer to the bottom of my top 20 of last year. And I had a movie from the director on my top 20 list this year. Same director had a movie called Sick of Myself that was also about like modern fame and social media and was like a pretty black satire in the same way the dream scenario is. And I, I really like that movie a lot. I like them both. Uh, I think Nick Cage's performance is what makes... Dream scenario, a, a worthy contender alongside the other one, just because he's such a uninteresting drip who thinks he's more special than he is, uh, which leads to a lot of great comedic tension as he like gets outsized fame beyond his actual interests as a human being. He's not special. <laughs> That's what makes it funny. Right. 
Absolutely. And I, I love the, the ending visual. I love everything that happens to him. Every time you think the movie is about to end, it goes on for another five minutes, um, which I really enjoyed. And, and there's a lot of really fun, surreal imagery in it. Um, that's great. Uh, next up, Suitable Flesh. Bad. Bad movie. Did not like it. Love Heather Graham. Love Barbara Crampton. That Jude, what's his name, kid from Babysitter is decent. This is a bad movie. I, I've actually started to hate it more since I did my write-up of it, and my write-up was not positive either. Didn't see it. Looked awful. And Allie, I, I want to give a special warning to you, because it is yeah. like, it's the it was supposed to be directed by um, the longtime Charles Band collaborator, whose name has completely escaped me at the moment. Stuart and Gordon? Yes, it was supposed oh, to be a Stuart okay. Gordon movie, and yeah. then he died, and it was still made. Like, Barbara Crampton stayed on as a producer, and made sure that it got finished with the director being this guy who mostly makes music videos. And it's just, I, I don't think that it's the director's fault. Um, the, there's nothing wrong with the directing in this movie. Other than like, there are a lot of scenes where I'm like, I don't understand what the choices that went into this particular set design were. It seems to be day always, or like, it seems to be 2 p.m. perpetually no matter what time the scene is supposed to be taking place. Uh, Heather Graham is fun in it. Uh, Barbara Crampton is the best part of it. Still bad. I, I just, I would don't do it. Don't do it. Stay away from sufficient flesh. I will say with that director, I looked him up after he liked your tweet of the review, which I think he was just like auto liking everything. Right. Covering that movie. <laughs> um, I was like, I wonder what else this guy directed. And, I had mixed results. One was this movie called Everly with Selma Hayek, where it's just her firing guns at like faceless goons for like an hour and a half. And I thought it was like so fun. Mm, I am into that. And the other one was this movie called Mayhem that I turned off within 30 seconds of it starting because I hated the tone. (laughs) So, you know, mixed results from that guy. Fair enough. Uh, I I saw The Boy and the Heron. Um, You can read my (gasps) review of that one. I gave it a positive review. Oh, what did you think? I loved it, but yeah, like I said, I, I that's going on my list, uh, which hasn't been published yet, but I absolutely freaking loved it. I was surprised that I had mixed feelings about it. In what way? Well, I liked it. it I liked the dream structure of the narrative, like the, the further and further you know, into I'm not, the sub-levels of like dream subconscious. I'm not surprised. Because You're not surprised? That yeah. you had a feeling about it, because narratively, it's very much about like, trying to move on and accept your new family and like get on with your life even though like stuff is terrible well what bothered me was not that part it was like the ending i think when okay the movie's kind of a mess really like it's it's like a late style last gasp from this director who is not really trying to adhere to a straightforward story anymore because he doesn't feel like he has to and the work speaks for itself like the beautiful images of nature and especially of birds like and i say beautiful um very loosely because the birds are also fucking disgusting and terrifying in this uh, yeah. but like miyazaki is a visual master like really gorgeous work on a visual level and then you get to this like sub 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 dungeon of his brain like deep inside his dreams yes where this young avatar of himself like post-war has um disappeared into this like fantasy realm and avoided actually dealing with the dark processes of his family. Like the way his family has evolved after the war, he's like avoided all that by going into this dream space and like fighting these 
disgusting parakeets instead of dealing with like real world consequences. And then he meets this like older avatar of Miyazaki now, who is this like wizard at the edge of retirement who has all these like fragile towers of building blocks that kind of represent all of the art that Miyazaki has sort of built over time. And the older voice is telling us as an audience, none of this shit matters. You shouldn't be here. Let all of this stuff crumble and walk away. All of the like time I've spent doodling little weird birds and weird little guys all of my life has been a complete waste of time. And I should have been raising my son and yes. hanging out with my family instead of this. And I just walked away from the theater like kind of bummed out. And I was just like, wait a second. I like the little guys and the birds. I, you I draw was going to say I, I, the little guys got me. They got me. Yeah. It's like I actually find value in that art. And I, I did like the movie, but I just had mixed feelings about it because I was like, this is kind of like a sourpuss take on your own work and your which, own life in a way that felt kind of unresolved and like miserable. Which like um, is in a way the that, most like, Miyazaki thing I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, sure. He's such a, he's just that guy. He's that guy. So yeah, I just kind of like, I was wistful for maybe times when he had more of a romantic view of the work he was making. Like thinking back to like Kiki's delivery service or something like you used to be able to walk away from his movies feeling transported and immersed in this like dream realm. And instead he's like kind of like hating on the mechanism a little bit. He's like, Oh, this is actually a waste of time. I don't know why I'm doing this stuff. I didn't pick up on that element. Like uh, to me, I didn't read the wizard character as an elderly Miyazaki, but I completely understand that reading. I just didn't try too hard i was gonna say <laughs> this I didn't time make, around i didn't make i didn't try to impose too much of a narrative on it but like i get why you see it that way because like yeah i kind of read it a little bit that way but i also kind of read it a little bit like just generally like adults and the state that they've left the world in for like the future and saying like it's okay if you, like, smash all of this. Like, whatever. Um, that's kind of what I got out of it, too, is, like, a little bit of both, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I saw it as, like, a self-indictment. Like, I am one of the adults. And to me, it was like a touch-grass movie. It was like, go outside and, like, play with your your family. Yeah. Stop looking at this nerd nonsense that I've spent my entire life creating. Well, I mean, he does like to hate on that nerd nonsense. That is... Right, right. If you guys haven't seen Kingdom of Madness and Dreams, it is so good. <laughs> I have not, and I should. I know there's a couple documentaries where he's like a, a notorious sourpuss. Kingdom of Madness and Dreams is just, that's my favorite, but yeah. Do you know what I have no qualms about, though, is Robert Pattinson's vocal performance in the English oh dub. Oh my god, is so good. Absolutely unhinged. So I, good. <laughs> I had that on my like best actor ballot for the year when I was doing Sefka votes, too. Like He's so good in this. I love it. I love this discourse. I love that we all saw a movie that wasn't our main topic for once, where we, we've all seen it in theaters and um, have shared our thoughts. My, mine are in my review, so I won't belabor them, but I appreciate those insights. I know there's at least one more movie that fits that exact description on your list. Um, Maybe the most recent thing you saw. Oh, yes. But before I get to that, I want to say uh, there was one more that I managed to see before I made my list, and it was based... Entirely on your recommendation, Brandon, uh, which was Royal Hotel. Um, you've oh, mentioned yeah. it multiple times. You recommended it 
um, to me and you uh, each time you were like, yeah, it's sort of like what men was trying to do, um, but maybe with a more grounded um, approach. It is very scary. Um, it is very, uh, it gets under your skin. I will say my buddy that I was going to watch it with when we were trying to figure out what to watch, I was like, I'm going to watch this or maybe we could watch this. We saw the trailer for this one and there is like a pull quote from one of the reviews that said, um, you know, a, a stunning and insightful view into, um, you know, gender politics or something or like, you know, I don't remember exactly what the phrase was, but he just kept saying it over and over again throughout the movie, which was very funny. Um, I really enjoyed all of the performances. Uh, I ended up putting a couple of them on my ballot. If you want to go back and look at that, uh, Hugo Weaving, almost unrecognizable in this, where it's terrifying. like terrifying. It's like, oh, he looks like that guy. Looks like uh, he could be Hugo Weaving's dr- drunken, untalented cousin. No, it's him, and I, that's not an insult to him. It's just like he look. He manages to create this character that's so different from what he normally plays and looks so different and older that you're like, oh, I thought that was him at first and then convinced myself it wasn't. That sort of He's been ogrefied. Yeah. Allie, I think you would like that movie. I don't know if you have time to squeeze any more in. I, I know it's like... I mean... I'm, I'm, I've been pushing list deadlines on you. I, <laughs> lately, yeah, so maybe I'm not helping my own I case. I mean, but. it's fine. I, I, I can try and squeeze it in. I... Yeah, there's a couple that people are like, you gotta watch this one, you gotta watch this one. So, um... Would it be tipping the scale to say that your inclusion of it might change the number one movie of the year, which is split between three titles? Uh, uh, although, maybe I, I was going to say, that. I already feel like I know what's going to be number one of the year, and it's going to interestingly be another one that like uh, will overlap us again with award season. I'm Ooh, completely in the dark. I've chosen to keep myself completely in the dark, knowing that... My number one was on no one else's list. I'm just like, I'm just going to let the cards fall as they may when the time comes. There is a movie that is number one on several people's lists that might not have a chance to make it to the Swampies number one because not enough of us saw it before voting. Uh, Would that be Poor Things? Yes, it would. Oh, is it okay. not going to? Oh, that's so sad. Oh, that would be a shame because I made my list and then I finally saw that just Ugh. this past week. Uh, it's so oh and i can't i can't do a write in ballot at this point it's very good i mean if you want to if you want to edit i i'm not going to stop you but uh not enough people like britney didn't see <gasps> it either in time and there are a couple movies that everybody saw so like the, the numbers game is just off i will consider it <laughs> you do not have to change what you posted to affect the outcomes of a top 10 list <laughs> that is completely made up and arbitrary but I, I did love it, by the way. Great. Of the Frankenstein adaptations that I have seen in the past year, it is the I best one. I was going to say, all of our Frankenstein adaptations that we've somehow managed to watch in the past year. Yeah. Well, I did watch about nine or ten of those, personally. Uh, I did not only watch the Kenneth Branagh one. Yeah, you watched the, you watched I, Frankenstein with uh, Tom Jane, right? Or whatever. That, not that uh, guy. I did, I did review that when it first came out in 2015 on Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Poor Things was great. Um, I'm going to echo something that, um, I mean, you didn't say this about this movie specifically, but you say this uh, pretty frequently, Brandon. I think it's a little long for a comedy. (gasps) I did think that it could have trimmed portions of the Paris segment. Like, I understand their importance and, like, her how it contributes to her growth as a character, but it was the segment I found the least funny. 
And I think that the same thing could have been accomplished with an abbreviated Paris section to the point where at the end of the movie, when she appears about to be uh, wed, I was like, okay, it's wrapping up finally, and it's going to be the right length for a comedy. And then, and then the wedding is interrupted, and there's additional, there's additional narrative after that. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm like kind of getting tired and cold at this point. I heard people say that about the cruise section more so than the Paris one, uh, the like the boat trip to Paris. I think that I just enjoy watching Mark Ruffalo throw a tantrum more. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's that very was funny in this. So he is very good. funny. <sighs> yeah, I guess I didn't think of this purely as a comedy. Though. No, like, I didn't. It is, it is very funny, but it's also like philosophical. It yeah, has like, it's picking at a problem from several angles, and I think uh-huh. each man that tries to control her in a different way and is frustrated by the results because she is, you know, someone who is not shackled by proper socialization is uh she's who i interesting want in a to different be way in the world yeah but mark ruffalo is the funniest one in that yes. um, group so like the sections with him are 100 percent pure comedy whereas like gerard carmichael is a little more introspective and then um towards the end uh, christopher abbott is like pure horror and that's like the most lanthimosian section of the film yeah is when uh she goes to uh, Christopher Abbott's house. And I would not and it's like, oh, sacrifice. This is the guy who made dog tooth. Yeah. I would not sacrifice that <laughs> yep. section for anything. Not for anything. Um but yeah, I really loved it. I loved the interstitials. I liked the psychedelia. I loved the color schemes. I loved what the sets were uh fantastic. Ah, Everything was so, so stunning. Uh I will consider editing my list or at least adding it in some way if that might end up putting it uh, would it just would it just break a tie or would it make sure that it's on the do you, do you really want the breakdown because i can give you the break no i'm sorry i shall remain ignorant uh that's no the i can, only way I can, I can tip the scales but ali hasn't voted yet so this would like really change the way things are going but yeah there are about three or four movies that are like no doubt going to be on our top 10 list there is one that has been seen by everybody and has made every single list so far. So it just has a great advantage in that it is a very popular film that all of us liked. I will make a I guess. was going to say, I know exactly which movie that is. Is it Barbie? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to beat just because everyone liked it because it's a very good movie and it's beautiful. And I wouldn't mind it being our number one movie because it's very good. But it also was also the uh, top grossing film of 2023 at the box office. Which, <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's kind of like a... A normie choice. Just because it's, it's like a normie choice, like doesn't mean it's not an interesting one. Because I would say like a lot of top grossing box office movies aren't exactly like critically acclaimed like Barbie is, you know? Right. I don't. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting movie. I I did rewatch it uh, over the holiday, but yeah, and it's me very too. similar to Poor Things. It yeah. is even just down to having like really extravagant set design as a way of like creating this visually distinct world. I guess I'm not spoiling too much by um, revealing the math of this because anybody could do these calculations. But uh, yeah, uh, Barbie is a very good movie. It was wonderful to see the Hollywood machine make a movie that visually and thematically interesting and funny. 
So and funny. then also the fact that like Poor Things is distributed by a Disney subsidiary is also <laughs> interesting as well because it is just the pervert uh, version of Barbie for it freaks. Is, yeah. It is the pervert version of Barbie for freaks. I did not think about it that way and I love having it put that way for me. No, you're right. It is for us because we are freaks. Which is why I, Yorgos... <laughs> He's he just, knows where our bread is buttered. He does. He knows he how really to hit does. our pleasure spot with an apple somehow. There are a couple other dark horses in the race, though. I, I don't want to say it's down to those two movies. All right. Well, I, I guess I should have. I, I should have done a, a bit and joked and jokingly guessed Megan. <laughs> I I don't know. Oh if my that's, god, Megan's going to be our number one movie of the year. I don't know if that's not going to be like that low on the list either, though. It might not make the cut. We'll see. Oh. oh. Uh oh. Megan's has, in trouble. <gasps> that one did come out in January of last year. It's yeah. been eight yeah. years since it came out, so it is. It got dumped into the theaters at a bad time for it to be remembered as part of a year-end list, which I honestly kind of assumed even watching it last, you know, twelve months ago. Tough news for Night Swim, the movie about the haunted swimming pool. It's got a long road to victory. Oh uh, well, I, I, I can't. Um, I, you know, I read your review. I can't imagine it's as good as Megan. Um, it's not it, and we, we already had our private discussion about how i don't like wyatt rushless uh facial hair and therefore um won't be watching it i'm gonna go ahead and now that we're done we're 80 percent of the way there we're not gonna take three hours aren't you happy i only have four more although i do want to say a, a fair amount about a couple of these um after making my list at the end of the year i also was like okay now is the time before new movies start coming out for this year that I can look back at some old classics and fill in some gaps in uh, gaps that I, as someone who considers himself a film critic, should have already filled long ago. But sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Um, one of them towards the end of last year, actually at the beginning of December, I watched Strojek, which, you know, shout out yeah, to that chicken. Uh, friend- shout out to that Uh, shout out to that chicken (laughs) Uh, i was i was gonna say shout out to friend of the podcast in in the sense that he is friend of mine isaac for um making me aware of this movie uh he was also the person who previously um recommended or not really recommended i don't want to like throw him under the bus and say he recommended the killer but told me about it Uh, and he said that he had seen strojek uh took a while for me to find it somewhere that i could watch it and then we did watch it and it was really something yep did you say in that review it was your first herzog movie besides uh grizzly man i did i did <gasps> say that and it was true what i'm having a moment here he's a very great director he there's is. a lot of good stuff you know my 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 social my social schedule is so full <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm doing things all the time, going to shows and all of that. I can't, I was going to find all the time to watch everything. But no, I, I did really enjoy this. Um, I did a write-up of it, so I won't, um, it's been long enough ago that if I try to talk about the movie, I might just end up reciting things I already wrote, and I won't waste everybody's time with that. I mean, the chicken is the most important yeah, part. Yeah, the chicken is the most important part. I loved the trailer, and I okay, loved yeah. the diner. I loved how much of the movie, even though it is not a documentary, it's, you know, it's a fiction film, how much of it is devoted just to, like, the mechanisms of things, 
whether it be the fact that Strozhek, I'm sorry, we do this all the time. Strozhek is a movie by Werner Herzog in which a man who is released from prison after serving a sentence um, based on his uh, things that happened whenever he was drunk returns to his old flat, um, finds that he is unable to tolerate this bullying that he receives from the pimps of a woman whom he is close to. So he, this woman and his elderly landlord move to um, the U S to live with the landlord's American nephew and get Strozhek a job there as a mechanic. And it becomes an indictment of the American dream as they first arrive in New York and they're like having a great time. And then they get out to this featureless muddy farmland in the Midwest and immediately all their lives fall apart. Um, I really love Strozhek's elderly landlord slash, you know, rescuer. Uh, he has this great bit where he goes up to people in the town and he asks them if he can like measure their energy. But of course he's asking in Polish and they don't understand what he wants, but he's just like, has this weird fascination with this concept of like animal magnetism, just exactly the kind of like adorable thing that like a grandfather could get into. That's like mostly harmless since the internet doesn't exist yet. Um, as well as this sort of like modern or contemporary jousting scene where these two farmers who are constantly in dispute over this very narrow strip of land just ride their tractors right up to that strip as they, you know, do go about their business all while they have their like shotguns on them. It's very funny. Yeah, it's like... And it ends with a chicken. It is such a funny, depressing movie. I... Like, truly, maybe the pitch is black of comedies, honestly. I, yeah. That movie really, I, I don't know, it's it stuck with me. <laughs> and you will notice the chicken um, is like a motif in Herzog's, Herzog's work yeah. over time. He's fascinated by their cold black eyes and eyes, their uncaring, yeah. bug-like attitude in the world. Yeah. Um, but the chicken in this movie is very cute and has a job, so it's a little different. Yeah. Will I notice that in his filmography? Only time will tell. <laughs> I'll check to see if he animated any Wonder Woman movies. Uh, <laughs> see if we'll catch up. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to belabor those, especially since the uh, the a lot of the copy on them hasn't even gone out because we're only two of these quote unquote issues into this um, maxi series. Oh, should I change the um, wording on the not so new 52 page to say issue number one, issue number two? Is that just a regular order? Oh, yeah, that would be cute. It would be like our Agents of Swamp Flicks thing. Quaint. On it. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the last three that I have to talk about, these are all movies that were major hits or uh, major critical successes, uh, maybe not at the time of release, but over time, um, and all of which were movies that were really missing from like my vocabulary because I just had never gotten the chance to see them. Uh, first up, I'm going to mention, um, I guess I'll work my way up to my favorite and start with my least favorite, which was Citizen Kane. What? Uh, I had never oh, come seen on. it. Come on. No look, movie. It's, it's great. Look, it is great. It's great. Okay. I, I, it's just the, my least favorite of these three. Um, it's amazing. Like on a technical level, on a storytelling level, I was moved by it. I just, I, it was a movie that I was like, I watched it and I was like, okay, I understand, you know, its importance in film history. I did really enjoy this anachronistic order. 
I love this like different perspectives on a single man sort of storytelling and how ahead of its time that was. I liked it a lot. I just didn't, I didn't love it. I find it explosively entertaining. It's amazing. Like, it is a very fun movie. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I hate to be the film person that's like, Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane. Like, but I am. I, yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm not here to knock the water that anybody is carrying for this movie out of their hands. I like, was going to say, great. as if we need to carry water for Citizen Kane. Right, but right. Yes, uh, <laughs> Have you heard of Vertigo too? That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was just you know, it's just one of those things. It was like a gap in my like film history. You know, it's like that day that you missed school and you missed one really important piece of information. Yeah, that was like Citizen Kane for me. I was sick that day. Um, what I really want to talk about though, as far as Citizen Kane, is that if this movie were not like eighty years old. I would think that it would be made as a parody of Queen of Versailles. Yeah. There's the, there's something like I actually looked up to see if there was any academic writing about this because it was so obvious to me. Tacky rich people are always going to be tacky rich people, I think is the But tacky rich people who like fail to build the biggest home in Florida, like the biggest (laughs) home in Florida. It's so specific. I mean, you're the person to write the article. I guess so. I guess so. But like, uh, you know, that part in Queen of Versailles where they go to their like warehouse where it's filled with all of these, you know, wares that they purchased from Europe in order to put them in the house once it's finished. And they're all stacked everywhere in these like crates. And it looks exactly like all of Kane's possessions stacked in his house at the end of Citizen Kane. It's like a movie that completely presages these absurd tacky rich people uh, and i i could not stop thinking about that my two thoughts that went through my head the whole time i was watching this was like oh wow you really could just make this entire movie out of simpsons clips that reference it yeah and b this is the life of the siegel family or like right down to even like having the sort of like talentless wife that you tried to create a career for uh, and it was very funny. It was uproarious. I laughed a lot more than the other people I was watching it with. My biggest laugh was... That's interesting, because um, it's a funny movie. I, I thought it was very funny, too. And everybody else laughed some. But there were things that I... I do think that I... I, I laughed mostly because I recognized, like, a reference to it from, you know, the way that it was referenced by a later work. Do we need to explain Citizen Kane, actually? Should we say? Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay. Um, good. We'll just keep I on rolling. I was going to say, y'all um, already did an episode on it, so... You know. Yeah, and I think that episode was the idea was like movies that we missed. So yeah, I think it was maybe James or somebody had not seen Citizen Kane before. Yeah, and I, and I were in the same boat. Like so until it was, now, it was a good episode. By the way, um, my favorite joke was, uh, you know, oh, Charles says he'll build me an opera house, but that won't be necessary. And then it cuts to the the newspaper headline that's like. Kane builds opera house. Like I loved it. Like every, it was a very funny movie. And I I think that a lot of people I talked to, they were like, Oh, it is a great movie, but I don't know that I personally would watch it again because I was bored by it. That's a quote. That's not me. I wasn't bored, but you know, I do think that this will be one that I watch again and probably enjoy even more. Once I have sort of a more established understanding of the way that it's edited and the way that the timing feels. I think that I'll I'll have a better experience of it on a second viewing. Yeah, especially like 
you know, I, you're at least aware of like its history and like that it was the first time to do so many of these things. Like, and there's oh, yeah. it's just so amazing. impressive. Like deep focus or, you know, building sets where the camera can move below the floor and above the uh-huh. ceiling. Like it really just like reinvented cinematic language. Yeah. And, Absolutely. But in, in a way that like is not stuffy and philosophical it's like actually just to make the movie more dynamic and entertaining yes like he's like trying to entertain you at all times i, I, I think want, it works i want you to keep that description in mind because that could also apply to my favorite fill in the gap okay that I saw all right that okay we'll get to. so I, I absolutely agree um but before we get to my number one the other the other big gap that i filled is that i had never seen there will be blood um for our viewers who maybe since this is like a 17-year-old movie, it's a movie in which uh, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson uh, in which Daniel Day-Lewis plays a man who strikes it rich with oil. Um, he eventually drives away anyone who could possibly care about him. It's a story about uh, greed and manipulation and how even if you're a person who could care internally, if you have to project the image that you don't, eventually you won't he's like a charles foster kane style figure if you will yeah i it was very <laughs> funny because i i watched uh there will be blood and then three days later saw citizen kane and with the same friend because we're you know it was also like oh shit you've never seen this either let's watch it together so that we can fill in these gaps i i did like there will be blood a little bit more for me personally just because um i really enjoy uh paul dano in this he's so wriggling he's like a snake he's just like there's something about his character uh i you know not that i think that citizen kane would have been improved if he you know had to like do battle with a radio evangelist or anything if that was his like nemesis but i really appreciated that there was someone specific who was there to challenge um daniel day lewis's character and there will be blood and of course it was just a beautiful movie it's gorgeous um you know uh, I can't believe uh, th- that I hadn't seen it before. I think it was just one of those movies that came out while I was in college and I just didn't have the bandwidth to go to the movies at all in those days or the money. That Paul Dano character would make a great French prosecutor in a different time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but my number one movie that I've seen so far this year while filling in the gaps and what you said before about Citizen Kane might also apply here was The Seventh Seal from 1957, <gasps> the Ingrid Bergman movie. Okay. Um, the you're, one that you're has speaking most... my language now. <laughs> I loved this. The very first movie of the month on Swapflex.com. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, no, maybe the second one. It was one, oh, of, okay. it was one of the first few, though. Yeah. This was another one that was one that I had just never gotten around to. And I'll be honest, part of it is because I expected it to be kind of boring. I knew that it was one of those movies that was part of like the great film canon, but I expected it to be done in like kind of a heady, philosophical, not very fun to watch way, because most of what most people know about this movie and the way that it's filtered into pop culture is all about that, you know, chess match with death. Yeah. Um, that runs throughout the movie. Bogus. Yeah. I was going to say, which I really love the chess ma- match with death. So, you know, yeah, it's great. It's ridiculous to me. In any case, because that's one of my favorite movies ever. So, <laughs> Can I ask you a quick question? Okay. Yeah. How much Bergman have you seen in general? I've seen a good deal of Bergman. I wasn't asking you. I know that Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, none, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Aww. 
I, I think you should watch Persona, I, especially yes. as someone who loves a woman on the verge oh, movie and yes. three women in particular. Like you Persona will, is Persona's, the masterpiece. It's yeah, it's one of those movies that's like this is probably a near perfect movie. I don't know, it might be a perfect movie. Like, it's foundational. Like yeah, the what's the Elizabeth Moss movie you like? Uh, Queen of with Earth. The painter. Yeah, it, it's like Queen of Earth would not, not exist without Persona. Like, it is yeah. a foundational text. Uh, I, I, here's the part where I'm going to interrupt and say, actually, I lie because I have seen Persona. I just forgot. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't good. realize. Right. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't put it together. Okay, good. <laughs> You're absolved. <laughs> You're free to walk. Thank you. I, I also think that I saw The Passion of Anna, maybe huh. in high school or in college, but I'm not 100% sure. You would like, I think, most of his crisis of faith stuff, like Through yeah. a Glass Darkly and Hour of the Wolf. Um, Hour of the Wolf is Winter Light. I great. mean, every movie's great. Yeah. <laughs> He's very good at what Sorry. he does. You keep listing Bergman movies, and I'm like, Bergman's so yep. good. Yeah. Good <laughs> Bergman's good amazing. I love that movie. <laughs> I, I am interested, you know. And, and like I said, this maybe this will just be the year for um, stupid comic book movies and filling in gaps. Because I also uh, have put in uh, with my local library to get a copy of Orson Welles's The Trial. Like, I'm really interested in watching that one because that's when Welles said personally was like one that he enjoyed making and and thought was better than Kane. Although that remains to be seen. Something you'll find about Welles is that (laughs) his movies are good. But none of them are as good as Citizen Kane because he never it's got true. to do exactly what he wanted ever again. Yeah. Like every single movie he has after that is a compromised work where studios completely fucked his vision. And then in the decades since, everyone's been trying to piece them back together the way he wanted to make them. And unlike many directors who should be told no, I think Orson Welles is the one who should have just gotten carte blanche to do whatever. But instead, he made William Randolph Hearst angry. So Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> he pissed off the wrong guy very early on. Yeah. And it took a long time for him to get recognition. Like Bergman was celebrated as he was making these films as a master. Citizen Kane was not celebrated until like a good decade later. Sweden's was very a small country, so. I, well, yeah, fair enough. I read about how it was booed at the Oscars, and all I could think about was, I better not hear any fucking clapping at the end <laughs> yeah, of yeah, Bo yeah. is Afraid. And I was like, they oh, the Bo okay. is Afraid treatment. <laughs> yeah, maybe in a few years, people will recognize that Bo is Afraid was the Citizen Kane of 2023. I will say Bergman's reputation is a little funny in America because it was released here as exploitation. So like it would be at these like grindhouse screenings because it was the few instances where you could see nudity yeah. in um, an American theater before like porn laws loosened. Which and, is uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah a very strange um, public reputation here. American cinematic history is so, it's just amazing. A bunch of horny Puritans not sure how to act. Yeah, public. exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's American history, baby. Yeah. Um, to circle back on the seventh seal, I, I, I always assumed it was going to be very heady, very like instructional, very educational. I had no idea it was so funny. It's one of the funniest movies that I've ever seen. I, I couldn't stop laughing at points and I couldn't believe that, that, that somehow no one had ever, in, in all my years of, you know, pop cultural osmosis, I had no idea that this movie was hilarious. Yeah. It's like what I say about, a lot of like criterion shit is people like go into it always expecting it's something boring it's like no these movies are on here like not all of them are great but like 
they're on there for a reason. Like, these movies are celebrated for a reason. And, like, just because it's, like, artsy-fartsy nonsense, like, give it a chance, <laughs> you know? The actually boring ones have been forgotten Yeah, exactly. Or were the ones forgotten to time were directed by women, you know? What are the other? Unfortunately. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I. so I, I'll just say my favorite bits were whenever um, the local oaf... A uh, blacksmith is engaged in a battle of wits against the runaway actor. And so uh, Max von Sydow's um, squire is like giving him little Cyrano de Bergerac jokes uh, to tell. And especially whenever he meets the oaf and he, he has this sort of non sequitur line where he's like, you know, oh, in the South, they have these things called apes. <laughs> Someone's like, why do you bring that up? And he's like, yeah, no reason. Like, that joke is just there for us. It's not even there for the other people in the movie, and I loved it so much. I mean, I, I can't stop thinking about, in the South, they have these things called apes. It makes me keep, it, it makes me laugh so much with this comparison of this, like, oafish blacksmith character to, you know, these animals that he saw in the Crusades that were almost human. Good stuff. But yeah, um, that's all I've been watching. <laughs> oh, that's all? Yeah, that's it. We we got to the end of it. We we did speed run. Uh, we didn't even break the seventy minute barrier. Aren't you proud? I'll let you know after I edit later how I'm feeling. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I'm ambivalent at the moment. Allie, uh, what have you been watching? So once again, I have watched a whole lot of stuff because I was playing catch up for um, making my list. But I will go through just a few um, things that I watched that are not going to be on my list. So for Christmas, I know everybody else was watching these holiday things. Um, I actually didn't do a whole lot of holiday fanfare this year. But I did watch Christmas Evil for the first time. um, Which is an interesting movie. I think it's like a John Waters favorite. I haven't it seen is. it. It is. Um, I know this is like kind of a cliche comparison at this point, but it feels like very like taxi driver-esque in some ways. Like it's not as much of a slasher as I thought it was going to be. You know, it's very like guy goes slowly more and more unstable sort of movie, um, which isn't necessarily to say like it's bad. It's just not what I was expecting. Is it a killer Santa Claus movie? It is a killer Santa Claus movie. In fact, sorry. Yes, in this movie, uh, there's this guy, and he is a Santa Claus super fan. Um, like he is obsessed. But part of it is like this childhood like psychosis in which he saw he literally saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, which of course was his dad, and so he like had a big breakdown because of that because he's like ah my mom she's a cheater so yeah he has this big old nut job moment based on that and like uh he goes on from there uh he works as somebody in a toy factory um and he like is like high up in the factory like real like into his job and all about the kids and so yeah he uh kind of slowly like loses it over this holiday season and decides like he's gonna play this vigilante sort of Santa Claus and you know decide who's naughty or nice and yeah like there's some parts of it that I'm like yes there's this is why this is one of John Waters favorites because there's just this like delightful kitschiness to some of it but it has that whole 
taxi driver like sort of feel and that like it's not really necessarily about this guy just deciding to slash people to death all the time it's more of like a he goes out in the world with the best in best yet flawed intentions and uh of course slowly like loses his mind as he's doing it so yeah i, I don't know it's an interesting interesting movie Boomer, what was that um, French movie that was like Home Alone? It was like a home invasion thing, but it ended up not being exactly that. It was like five, six, seven, Papa Noel or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, Which is what I was thinking about when you were describing this. Yeah. It's like an an alternate Christmas movie where you're like, oh, I get this. It's like an evil Santa Claus invades a home and this kid... You know, knocks him over with a bunch of booby traps, and then when you're watching the movie, it's like that's not exactly. Yeah, what's going I was on gonna here. say like I, I very much expected like Santa slasher, but what I got was like this very interesting like psychological picture of this guy who like is desperately wanting the world to be better, but also totally is unqualified to do that and is taking the wrong path to do it. Um. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's a fascinating movie. I I recommend it. It's you know kind of a low budget, cheapy, interesting sort of thing. There's uh not much more to say about it other than like you know if John Waters likes it, like I assume the crowd here will appreciate it because we're 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 on his wavelength to some extent. So yeah, what else did I watch? Oh yes, I watched Shin Kamen Rider. Hell yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Sorry, it is not making my list, but I do want to say that I do really like it, and it is a lot of fun, and I do recommend watching it. It will be on the next episode of this podcast. We're going to do an honorable mentions episode, so we'll oh, talk about Shin Kamen nice. Rider. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Once again, like I do love the feeling of just being a kid and watching cartoons while eating very sugary cereal. But I don't know, just some parts of it felt a little like wild convoluted. And like, I know it's very much in the style of like classic anime. Like I know they were very, it's very truthful feeling to the source material, even if I haven't watched it. I had that on my like top 20 list for the year. And I still had Shin Ultraman like way higher because I thought it was like a better movie. Um, But they both kind of do the same thing. It's like a season's worth of episodes of a tokusatsu property all in a row (laughs) so it's like watching an entire season of power rangers in like one sitting uh which can be a lot yeah but still a great trip to the theater last year i really enjoyed watching them with the crowd yeah i feel like it would be real fun with a crowd you're right it's a whole lot of fun big recommend especially if you just want a movie night where you're like you know what i really wish i were watching something cartoony but live action and i also like that basically all of the best action movies these days is like not coming from the u.s i don't know it's fascinating to me you know we got i mean rrr just, and then like shin common writer and i mean just last year shin common writer shin ultraman and godzilla minus one yeah you know saw all three of those in a u.s theater last year i want to say godzilla minus one made more money in america than it did in japan which is wild yeah it's still hanging around too like it's i know i thought that was going to be like a I rushed out to watch it opening weekend because I thought that was going to be my only chance, but it's yeah. still lurking in U.S. theaters right now, which is great. Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, we have the same old 
crap system of like Hollywood. But in other ways, it's like we get to see so many movies from so many places in the world. And in some ways, I will say that is because of streaming, you know, like we wouldn't be having this access to so many things if we weren't able to like turn on Netflix. I know there's definitely evils involved, but to some extent, we are living in an age when regular people can just watch movies from India without right. having to travel somewhere, uh, which is cool. It's cool. So yeah, I, I enjoyed that. It's a lot of fun. Shin Kamen Rider, this guy is unknowingly experimented upon, and he's broken out of the facility by this lady. And this all happens off screen. Uh, he's broken out of this facility by this lady, and he finds out that he has been augmented to be part insect. And he's part grasshopper, specifically. And so he is recruited in an effort to stop the people who are augmenting the humans to save the world, basically, because these people, like, they want to bring happiness to the world, but happiness and uh, pain are just uh, one stroke apart in kanji, which is uh, one of the writing systems they use in Japan. So I thought that was great, because uh, Japanese loves their, their written puns. Worth noting too, you said this was um, anime style earlier. Yeah, but it, it is, is a live not, action. It film. is a live action movie done in that style. Because it's directed by Hideaki Anno, who did Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah. So like every frame is kind of made to look like anime, even though it is live action. It's just like a very like stylized camera choices, like the different yes. angles and like the sound um, effects, sort of eccentric <laughs> sound effects, and you know characters are. In that kind of Power Ranger style, there's a lot of like goofy mutant villains that the grasshopper motorcyclist has to kill yeah. as he runs around doing his Batman routine all around Japan. I was just very excited by all the sound effects where it was like, oh yeah, that sound. <laughs> if you really want like a cutesy, like high femme version of this, uh, the same director of this movie called Cutie Honey in oh. the 2000s. It's adapted from an anime and... It's like this and Spice World kind of like <gasps> melded together. In you a really fun way. are like speaking so many things in my language. Cutesy. Great movie. Spice World. Just touching on all the all the <laughs> all the pleasure centers right now. So yeah, it's fun. Recommend it. You won't have a bad time watching it. Uh what else did I watch? Yes. I watched um the documentary the Technically, it was from last year, but I don't know. It was I don't remember whether or not it was out near me. Uh, Time Bomb Y2K. Oh yeah, that released on HBO Max like in the last like two, two days, days of, of the year. year. Yeah, but I'm absolutely fascinated by all things like weird, historic, like digital panic. So of course I had to watch it. Um, it's this documentary about the Y2K panic and it is done entirely in archival footage. So, you know, kind of, we've already done um, The Great Satan, so kind of like everything is, or everything is terrible? Yeah. It's kind of like that in that way, but it's a fascinating sort of, sort of ride in that way. Because, I don't know, I love archival footage just generally so 
having that and watching all of these old like news clips and bits of media that were around during that time, it's fantastic. Um, it's just this fascinating, interesting time capsule of the happenings of that era. And it's so funny because, you know, by the time I was cognizant of what was going on, Y2K had become a joke. Like, we even kind of still joke about it. But, like, watching it, I was like, oh, crap, I understand why people panicked about this. Like, <laughs> there's stuff in there that I did not realize had happened. But then at the same time, like, they obviously did figure it out. Uh, of course, like, we're not living in the apocalypse, are we? Um, it's sort of, but not the right, not that kind. So, yeah, it's really interesting in that way where I just kind of feel like, how did this end up being a joke? Like, people were working day and night to keep this disaster from happening. Which, once again, I was not aware of, because I was 10. Well, I was 9, so, you know, it totally slipped past my radar. So I think it's worth watching, especially um, for people who either uh, weren't alive during this era, or, um, you know, just aren't familiar with everything that had to be done to keep this stuff from happening, I think it is a lot of fun. Because once again, it is a time capsule of time capsules. Like, you really, like, you can laugh, laugh it up a lot <laughs> about uh, some of the things in this movie where you're just like, wow, it was a simpler time. So yeah, I think your, uh, your familiarity and um, view on, like, archival footage Depending how you feel about that will determine your opinion of it. But yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. I was super interested in it, but the fact that they released it like it was like December 30th or something. I was so over trying to catch up with new stuff that I I mean, this is just really bad diligence as a critic. I was just no. like, I'm, I'll catch up with that some other time. I'm not going to blame you for it. You watch so many movies all the time. I don't get paid to do this. I definitely had like, if I keep trying to like sneak one more movie onto my list, I'm going to burn out really hard. Yes. So I just kind of put it on the back burner, but I, I do want to see it. It looks really cool. Yeah. I think you'll really like it. Cause I know, you know, you're, you're like me and that like archival footage is a fun time. Oh yeah. I was actually thinking of this movie, um, recorder, the Marion Stokes story. Um, that you would probably find interesting, but it was this lady who had about four VHS um, recorders going at once for decades. Like she had this kind of paranoid archival instinct where she was like, if I don't record all of this stuff on basic cable, it will just go away forever. So she had like four news channels on four separate VCRs oh, at all times. My God. And she was obsessed about changing the tapes out as they ran that out one at a time. Absolutely fascinating. But watching the movie, it was like, okay, so now this archive in San Francisco, it might even be archive.org, I'm not sure, but like somebody, you know, inherited all of her tapes after she died. And it was like, okay, well, this documentary is great. It's a great profile of like this like volunteer archivist who like was doing this work somewhat um, voluntarily, uh, somewhat <laughs> medically, yeah. couldn't help herself. But, um, now what? Like, now there's all this, like, rich footage. What are we doing with it? Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like Time Bomb Y2K is, like, proof that if someone had access to that material, they could actually craft yeah. interesting, rich narratives out of the raw material she gathered. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in the subject uh, 
I was just no longer interested in watching new movies yeah. <laughs> on December 30th of 2023. I do really think you'll enjoy it. Um, if anybody uh, else will enjoy it as much as I did, it, it'll be you. Um, like I said, unfortunately, it kind of got bumped from my list by something else. Otherwise, it, it would have been on there. Because I realized, I like had a moment where I was like, I haven't watched any documentaries from this year. I feel incomplete. So had to do that so yeah and obviously i watched a lot of other things um some of which will be on my list actually all of the things i didn't mention today are going to be on my list um so keep your eye on that it'll be coming at you sometime this next week hell yeah so brandon did you take an absolute cinema break or are you back at it oh no i didn't take a break i was just watching what I would call like Turner classic movies style nice. fodder. Like I was watching a lot of like, yeah, like Barbara Stanwyck and like Marlena Dietrich style movies from like the thirties and forties, Nice. Um, which I will not, you know, belabor too long in here. Cause it's like, you don't need to hear that those are good. Ben Mankiewicz is out there telling you it's great already. I, I don't need to be doing that. Um, I do have three movies I would call kind of like deeper cuts beyond that, like TCM surface level cinema. But yeah, I've been watching a lot of older stuff. Uh, much like Boomer watching his first Orson Welles and uh, Werner Herzog and Ingmar Bergman movies, I watched my very first Frederick Wiseman film over the break. Uh, Frederick Wiseman is known for fly-on-the-wall documentaries. Uh, he's got a very patient style of documentary filmmaking where he just sort of points his camera at process. So like... His more famous movies are, I think in the 1970s or 60s, he had one about high school in America, where it was just like watching what high school is like for hours at a time. Um, and as time has gone on, they've become more and more elaborate. So now he's got these like three-hour documentaries about like municipal government in Boston, Massachusetts, or his most recent one this year is like four hours at this Michelin star restaurant in New York or France. I'm not really sure which one. Probably France. Uh, I find him intimidating as someone who's been making movies for half a century and I don't know where to start. And all of them sound very dry. Uh, just watching the day-to-day operations of a bureaucracy just not, does not sound that interesting <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm sure they're great. I just need like an in, you know? Uh, the first one I did watch, though, was called Crazy Horse from tw- 2011. It is a fly-on-the-wall documentary about a strip club in Paris. So I feel like he was kind of meeting me halfway as far as, like, entertainment value goes. It's kind of like a fly-on-the-wall nudie cutie because it's this, like, kitsch cabaret burlesque style of stripping that's been going on, I think, since the 1950s at this club that, you know, probably became stale at some point, but since they kind of persevered and pushed through a time when they were outdated has now become like an institution. You know, it's like an old form of stripping that um, now has that kind of like Bob Fosse glam to it where it might've seemed a little corny in the eighties. Now it's like classy in a weird way. So we watch um, these kind of up to date avant-garde choreographers try to like zhuzh up this old burlesque show, kind of put in a fresh coat of paint on it. And there's a lot of conflict between the 
money invested in the show who want things to go on. Like they want operations to continue without a break so they can keep the money flowing. And also these like artistic types who are coming in and trying to like make the show more contemporary and avant-garde and like up to date. And there's like a, a lot of interesting behind the scenes conflict of that interspersed with Wiseman just kind of pointing his camera at the stage rehearsals of this horny burlesque show. This kind of like Dina Von Teese style retro stripping act. Um, it's just a very interesting movie about like art versus commerce. Um, but it's also got this kind of like cheesecake, um, undertone to it where it's, it's a little sleazy on top of his normal, like find the wall process movie style. So I, I really liked it. I thought it was very good. Was this your first Wiseman? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen anything else from him. I'm just, I'm aware of him. Right. It's just like, it seemed like very, you know, hard to get into, I believe that I saw uh, High School in High School. I think that was one that we watched as part of the film club. And I know that I've seen Public Housing from 97, which is the Chicago uh, public housing development one that's like three hours long. He's got another one about the New York public library system that I'm sure is very interesting. It's just like, yeah, sitting down to watch a four-hour movie about bureaucracy is, is a tough sell for me. But you know it's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> Make those wooden clogs. I was going to say, I think it kind of almost sounds like an interesting thing to just like have on, which I know is like kind of like we don't encourage that around here a lot at all, um, since we do like to focus on uh, movies entirely with our, our whole hearts and minds. But uh, it does sound like one of those things that you could just like have on calmingly in the background. I don't know why. Well, I also have a friend who's like really into Wiseman and said she's been watching a lot of his stuff over the past year in particular. And she was like, oh, yeah, you should see the library one, let's say. Yeah. Um, we watched it over three or four nights. And oh, to yeah. me, like, I will never do that. Like, <laughs> if I'm going to watch it, I'm going to set aside like an entire afternoon and like do it in one sitting. And that's really just me and getting in my own way, you know? Like, I'm like, I refuse to break it up, so I'm, like, kind of hindering myself. Also, that high school movie sounds like a dream movie that I had once that was about this uh, documentarian making a movie about uh, high schoolers in Jefferson Parish. So, uh, dream me knows what's up, I guess, um, is what I'm saying. Well, if you do want to go back to school and live that time of your life again, I watched a really good one in this break called peppermint soda from 1977. Um, it is a French woman filming her childhood memories with her sister growing up in 1960s Paris. Um, I think around the time it was made, uh, Judy Bloom's are you there? God, it's me. Margaret was kind of like a hot ticket. You know, it was just a very popular style of literature and like that kind of matter of fact explanation of what, young female adolescence was like was kind of like daring at that time. Um, it's a little hard to picture now when like when we were kids in the nineties, I can name a bunch of stuff like my girl or mermaids or um, now and then there's like a bunch of really good female youth movies that like counteracted. I guess their corollaries would be like uh, stand by me or something like that. Like there's, there's a bunch of like female adolescence movies that took, the drama of like a girl's daily life around middle school and high school very seriously. Um, so I don't know that peppermint soda feels as daring as it did back then. I mean, even just in this past year, are you there? God got its own like Hollywood adaptation. 
But when when she made it, Diane Curris was this uh, French director, and she had never touched a camera before making this film. Oh, that's she never touched a a still photograph camera or a movie camera. And she was like compelled just watching all her French contemporaries, these other artists and literary types make movies like the 400 blows uh-huh. that were about like boys childhoods. And she's like, where are the girls stories? Like, where is the other half of that? Um, you know, Agnes Varda can't be the, I was going to say she can't be the on only one. <laughs> right. So um, it's this very warm, intimate, story about these two sisters who are only a few years apart in 1960s Paris for like one calendar year um, just sort of like having these low drama conflicts with their friends you know experiencing their first period or their first makeout session these things that have kind of low stakes like it's not like their lives could be ruined by anything they're doing on screen but the drama and the emotion of the day-to-day feelings that they're going through are huge which obviously has been like a cinematic interest ever since like the the coming of age story in these types of movies has you know been done to death in the decades since i would say uh wes anderson is a pretty good aesthetic touch point for this i was thinking particularly of moonrise kingdom at one point and also the student riots in the french dispatch uh, feel like they were kind of borrowed from this film visually. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom, I think, is specifically of when they go camping in the sort of wilderness outside the family home when they become teenage runaways for a second. And around the time the French Dispatch came out, when Wes Anderson did a series in a Parisian theater about his favorite French movies, um, and Peppermint Soda was like the highlight film at the center of it. So if, if you have any interest in his visual style, I think he, he was highly loves influenced in this. That French New Wave style. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, but this is like '77, so this is a little after. after yeah. yeah, it's not like Godard and Varda and um, Truffaut like running around with those handheld cameras Which doing these, like American crime too, pictures. Yeah. yeah, this is like a little more. If it's like Varda, it's like La Bonaire or something. It's yeah, a little more slickly done, a little more romantic. Even though this is like an amateur, she's very shrewd about budget. So like there's these sequences where there's these these like vacation photo slideshows that sort of supplement the budget a little bit. So like you kind of imagine these scenes without them actually having to film it. And she also, I'm thinking of La Bonaire as well, because she has like a really good eye for interior design. So even though this is only like 10 or 15 years removed of the setting, there's these kind of like throwback 60s patterns in the couch upholstery and in the um, curtains and things. Yeah, just very visually beautiful. I watched this like 2K restoration of it that's on Canopy right now. Yeah, it's, it's just a very well done coming of age movie. Um, I mentioned mermaids earlier and you know, like sometimes those coming of age movies like hit you emotionally way harder than any other kind of story. Just cause like you think about how vulnerable you were at that time and how every small drama like meant the world to you. And like, there's just no frame of reference for context of how much that would like mean in the long run of your life. So like a lot of the memories of these like small crises back then still stick with you as you're older and you feel this like filmmaker sort of reaching back and illustrating the most emotionally impactful times of her lives, even if they are kind of like small day-to-day mini dramas. I missed a movie on my list. <laughs> what was it? Mermaids. 
Hell I saw yeah. that for the first time since we spoke what? last as well. I know. Well, I hadn't the first time all the way through from start to finish. I have seen it in bits and pieces many times over the years, if that makes sense. Anytime I am feeling low, you know, like people talk about their comfort movies, like yeah. something to throw on just to make you feel good. Mermaids and Matilda back to back as a double feature. Ugh, it like, freaks me out. Mermaids is so good. Like it was my high school best friend's favorite movie. You know I love Winona Ryder. You know I love Cher. Yeah. You know I love Christina Ricci. That was like another gap that needed to be filled. And what's funny is we ended up watching it right after the start of the year, and it makes for a great New Year's movie because the scene where Cher kisses that man, adult man. Um, that Winona Ryder is obsessed with that happens after the New Year's Eve party so it actually is a perfect movie for this time of year as well and anytime you want to get horny for Bob Hoskins like throw it on you know he in that movie was such a Kavorka man just like Mark Ruffalo in uh, Mark Ruffalo <laughs> in Poor Things Ideal Gigolo <laughs> Mark Ruffalo Ideal Gigolo <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have one more kind of deep cut. I'm only referencing it. I know we've been going along, but like I got, I got one more that I think y'all might be interested in that I watched. Um, it's called The Lathe of Heaven from 1980. <gasps> I love that Ursula, book. Oh, Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin adaptation. Huh. I love that book. Who's in that one? It's 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 not Scott Kahn. It's Willard. Yeah. Who played Willard? Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. No, before that. Oh. Oh. 1980. The uh, not the two thousands one that was on like the Sci Fi Channel. Yeah, with Lucas Haas, I re- I remember that one. Oh, it's I- I'm thinking of um Bruce Davison probably. Yeah, that's right. Who was the 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 evil senator in the X Men movies and also um the first person possessed in suitable flesh? Again, do not watch it. Skip it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's what happened. I watched a documentary about Ursula K. Le Guin. And it was recent, so it's kind of weirdly framed as, like, she's the lady who inspired Harry Potter a couple times, which I found very annoying. Oh, yeah. and insulting. Referencing Earthsea in particular. I'm um, upset. <laughs> but there were other interesting things about the documentary that were good. Like, it was just, like, that kind of sticking point hurt me a little bit. And then I was looking at her website after the documentary was over, and there's a section on adaptations, and literally only... Two of her works have ever been adapted to TV and yep. film. And it was the Tales from Earthsea uh, was like Miyazaki's son made an awful anime. Um, and <laughs> there was a terrible sci-fi series that whitewashed yes. it as hell. And then also there's that Lathe of Heaven. I don't think it was sci-fi originally, but I feel like it played on the sci-fi channel, which wasn't very good either. It was like a TV movie. I don't know why they have such a hard time getting her work right. Well, here's the thing. In 1980, she was approached, this is the only other adaptation of her work, to adapt Lathe of Heaven, and she was like, you can't adapt that. It, it wouldn't work. <laughs> and they were, like, very interested in it, um, and she decided to see, just out of interest, how they would do it. So she worked with them and has, like, a story or, like, a um, script-writing consultant credit in the opening credits of the movie just because she wanted to see how they could adapt an impossible text. That's the good. movie was made by these two video art guys from New York City. So, like, think, like, late 70s experimental video art before most people had, like, video in their homes. They're kind of playing with the format in a way. Um, it's kind of testing what video can do that, like, traditional film could not. Um, because of that, 
there aren't a lot of original materials for the film um, available anymore. They, they produce this for New York City public television. I was going to say, yeah, wasn't it a time, PBS thing? Uh, it wasn't PBS. It was like the local public access TV in New York. Okay. It was for some channel out there. Um, and because of that, they did not keep great records for the movie. So like they don't have a lot of original elements and like what's surviving is not in great shape. But honestly, it kind of gives it this like spooky archival look to it where there's a lot of um, I think they call it ghosting or trailing where an image kind of like burns into the screen for a second longer than it should and gives everything this kind of like smeared look as scenes transfer from one to another. Um, in the movie, there is a guy who when he dreams the artificial worlds that his brain creates in REM sleep manifest real changes in the world outside of his and body. And they fuck up Portland. <laughs> yeah, they uh, change the weather and politics of Portland forever uh, because his therapist, who he goes to with this problem, doesn't believe him at first, but quickly realizes he's not telling, he's not lying and uh, uses his magical brain to try to better the world. And the more the therapist fucks with reality using his patient's brain, his effective dreams, as they call them, uh, the more like monkey's paw kind of like unintended consequences manifest outside their office in Portland. And the movie is kind of this parable about just kind of going with the flow in a, in a weird way where like the dreamer wants the dreams to stop cause they're scary, but he doesn't want to like change the world for the better. He just wants to kind of like live life and accept it as it is. And the therapist um, wants to better his own life in a selfish way, but also better, the globe uh, and it's like geopolitical sense. And every time he jumps in with a big picture change for the world, it always has this unintended consequence where like by the end, humanity is enslaved by alien invaders. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's also other consequences. I won't spoil if you haven't read the book cause it's very good. So yeah, it, it's a very interesting story. Uh, I would say the video art aspect of it is the only like visual touch that, like, a lot of it kind of feels just kind of like a TV play. Like, it feels like it was, like, PBS-style masterpiece theater, you know, illustrations of Le Guin's work. But there are these moments where the dreamer is hooked up to these machines that are have these, like, weird video art displays. Or when the weather is being changed in Portland forever to, like, not rainy and sunny all There's the time. There's, like, this uh, horrifying moment in it um, where... I mean, having I, I since I, I live up here, um, there's this horrifying moment in the book, um, I haven't seen the movie, where they talk about so here Mount Hood is clearly visible from like I don't know if they do this in the movie, but here Mount Hood's like clearly visible from the city and in the book there's like this moment where like he goes out into the world and there's no snow on the top of Mount Hood and it just feels like way too real. I'm like, oh no. So like <laughs> every time I'm like going past Mount Hood, I was like, is there snow? <laughs> so thanks climate change and Le Guin for uh, making us even more scared of climate change. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's in the book, but in the movie, but in the book, it's like one of the particularly frightening moments. But yeah, this movie has an interesting visual touch to it because of the video art experiments which is more than you can say for any of the other Le Guin adaptations. Like the sci-fi channel stuff is very pedestrian. It just feels like any sci-fi channel content. There's nothing interesting about it besides maybe her ideas. And then 
the Studio Ghibli version of Tales from Earthsea is pretty weak in comparison to the rest of that studio's catalog as well. It's no boy in the heron. But yeah, Lathe of Heaven, uh, 1980. It's it's an interesting Ursula K. Le Guin movie, which is not something you can say about most of her adaptations. I was just uh, fretting earlier, too, about how like now that she's dead and gone, like are people going to be trying to scramble to adapt her work? Or... Is her estate gonna hold strong? You know, only only time will tell, I guess. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universal mind controlling everything a God willing the behavior of every subatomic particle. Now, every particle has an anti-particle. Its mirror image, its negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. And we are back to talk about Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter. It is from 1987. I picked this one because I had never seen it, despite seeing the other two movies in the quote-unquote apocalypse trilogy, which they're all about the apocalypse and the end of the world, but they're not, like, other than being thematically connected, they are not story connected. So it's the thing, Prince of Darkness, and then also at the mouth mouth of madness. Sorry, I Yeah, Mouth of Madness. Yeah, Mouth of Madness. Uh I never remember the name of that movie because I've seen it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. But for some reason the title does not stick in my head. Well the original ti- the like HP Lovecraft title that it's like a takeoff from is At the yeah. Mountains of Madness. Instead of in the mouth of madness, so it's like in your brain, it can get right. really easily scrambled. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yes, uh, in this movie, we have Victor Wong as uh, Professor Barak. Of uh, he's a theoretical physics professor, and we have Donald Playsense as a priest. Um, I'm sure there's other people in here that are known, but I unfortunately... Oh, Alice Cooper is also in it, but we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, so it starts out with this very old priest. He's clutching a silver, an ancient like looking silver box to his chest and he dies. And then we go to switch to Victor Wong teaching his theoretical physics class um, with his students. And Oh yeah, and Victor Wands is talking about like particles and waves and quantum superposition and all this theoretical nonsense about like how the world isn't exactly what we perceive if we look at these theories. I was trying to imagine if his lecture actually ever got to like individual facts or if he just showed up every week and for hours he was like, up is down, left is right. Time goes backwards. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely teaching one of those physics classes, and anybody who likes to joke about, like, 
making fun of nerds knows what I mean when I say those physics classes, where they're like, it's the nature of reality, rather than we're nerds and we like to do math. Um, those are the two different physics classes that I know, and just from that attitude, y'all can guess which ones I prefer. <laughs> so yeah, they have one of those physics classes all about quantum superposition and the nature of reality, where there's no actual like laws or anything talked about. And then we go to Donald Plaisance, he's like this priest, he opens the box, there's this key to this door, he opens the door, inside is this like creepy basement level that is full of crucifixes all over all the walls, candles lit everywhere. So many lit candles. It was So like, many lit candles. It was like Wishmaster. It really was. I was trying to figure out if like the satanic power of the church was like lighting those candles, candles? every day yes. or is, or if that was like part of the um opening up shop for the day routine to like yeah. walk around the world and light every candle one at a time that's what i was wondering too i was like because like he kept talking about the old priest donald plays out says the old priest all he did was he woke up, he would go into that room, and he would like leave once a week, and he just stayed at this abandoned cathedral slash it's not a cathedral, it's just a church. At this abandoned church, he was just like there all the time, except he would go out to food for once a week. And uh yeah. I, I wondered like if he spent his days just like lighting candles and then going back to bed. Um, maybe saying some prayers. I don't know. Anyway, there's this big container of ooze, um, not like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but but not, not unlike, unlike it, it either. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not unlike it, but not like it. It does make you wonder if there had been a turtle, what would have happened? But anyway, so there's this big container of ooze. Donald Plaisance, uh, for some reason, decides he should talk to a theoretical physics professor. And they gather together a bunch of students of physics biochemistry, microbiology, there's like a religious scholar because there's a book that's in all sorts of different languages and it's been erased and written over. So yeah, they all get together to investigate this ooze. And over the time of investigating the ooze, they determine that it is Satan itself or the Antichrist loosely itself. Um, it's some sort of demonic entity from outer space they theorize based on the writings so yeah of course eventually uh all hell breaks loose and they have to uh figure out what to do about it and uh save the world sort of uh as far as like carpenter movies go this one's kind of meh there's some really great scenes the soundtrack's pretty fun but overall it just to me the biggest sin was it felt very slow. I hate this movie. There's a lot of sexism and racism going around, but it just felt very slow. Like, for some reason, to me, that was the biggest problem. You said you hate this movie? I do. Huh. <laughs> Wait, I thought I definitely that, don't hate it. I thought that we were all about it. to agree on that point. Sorry. No, I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't have I burst in if it. I realized that was going to be a hot take. There's, like I said, there's some very fun moments in this movie that I think are just, like, great. Uh, my favorite is maybe when one of the characters goes outside during all of this and like there's just this it's nighttime and there's just this line of like houseless people who have been enthralled as like zombies by this satanic ooze like the power of it 
just like lined up and then you know alice cooper comes forward and like kills this guy wait i'll throw this out there Mm -hmm. i don't hate this movie but i hate alice cooper in this movie why is he here what is he adding um just a creepy vibe thing i don't know with his killer unicycle Unicycle? yeah his killer unicycle i yeah that was a great that was a great moment was it yeah i appreciate (laughs) that i appreciated the killer unicycle i'm gonna be honest I mean, it was only, it was half a bicycle, okay? <laughs> yeah, it was just half a bicycle. It was a broken bicycle. Bicycle. But it's rigged up with that um, Peeping Tom style. Yes. Um, like protruding phallus at the end of it with a knife. Yeah. I didn't really know what to make of that. I, I remember, I think, reading the Wikipedia page, it said like that was just a prop from the Alice Cooper stage show that he was like, hey, I have this cool I was gonna instrument. Say... Can I kill somebody with it? <laughs> And they said yes. It really had nothing to do with the movie. I think I enjoyed it because it was like the first start of something actually kind of happening. That wasn't the opening credits for 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't the opening credits. It wasn't a bunch of people like arguing about bad science, you know. I love the bad science. That's where I'm going to come down positively. Okay, here's the thing is it's not bad enough for me. Okay. (laughs) There's so much runtime before this movie starts. There's just, there's so much of it. It it takes so long. When you get to the point where you're learning the characters' names um, at, like, the church. Who? Like, by the point, okay, like, the point in the movie where that guy gets killed by Alice Cooper in the alley. Yeah. That's the part of the movie where what's supposed to be happening is that this is the point in the movie where you kill off a character who's random, who's not super integral to the plot, to establish that they're in mortal danger it needs to happen 25 minutes earlier than it happens this movie is so long i okay when you i I guess we you forgot that when we talked about this last and neither of you had seen this yeah uh and you said we're gonna watch prince of darkness i I literally said oh i I hate hate that that movie movie. and i heard it and And i was like well we can try i can try and find something else and uh, you were like no well i'll rewatch it i did and i really was hoping that this time i would like it more i thought that maybe i would find something to enjoy It, it very much is like john carpenter trying to make like an argento or like a a, a gallo supernatural horror movie like an italian supernatural horror it's very much like uh demoni or la chiesa like or inferno yeah it's just like a loose collection of scare gags that are kind of like tied together by one evil entity yeah but they're all bad and they're they they take they're all so bad come apart. on what about the the lady whose skin is flayed off and she's she becomes the only like, one but that doesn't happen that happens an hour and 50 minutes into what about movie? the corpse that explodes Loads, yeah goo upwards and fills the ceiling with the goo that's still her and that's also in the last 15 minutes what about the soldier of the bug of the the bug army who just fills with bugs until his head can't stand on his bug body and anymore he just like right slowly okay, collapses yeah, right that, one. that one was amazing yeah <laughs> what about the anti-god emerging from the mirror realm so like when you go into the mirror you're in this like uh, again that underwater yes, is cool that's the last five minutes but, yeah I was were you not say. raised on j-horror movies that are just like slow tension building for a hundred no. minutes and then the last five minutes they go crazy i feel like i was no. trained for this my whole life so here's the thing <laughs> i am into those movies i'm into like i freaking loved things like skinny rink which are 
a lot of like slow waiting slow. until something happens just like suddenly. But like I think the reason why this one felt so slow is that even with that, it's still made very much like a popcorn Hollywood horror sort of movie. And so I think that's where the disconnect happens for me is it's still got the vibe, but it doesn't have the rest of the vibe. It doesn't help that we, Boomer and I just watched the perfect version of this movie in The Exorcist 3 <laughs> in the recent months. How dare you mention its name in this discussion? Well, it's a better version of this movie. I was going to say, you yeah. mentioned it as the better version. So I believe that's fair because I did go, I did end up watching it. So y'all can uh, be happy with me because I, I... You did the work. I did the work. Um, And it is absolutely, it is definitely the better version of this and i think that might be yeah that might be especially why this one is uh having our our wrath here well here's where i'll get a little blasphemous in general in that i've been lucky over the years i've saved my john carpenter first watches for theatrical viewings like the first time i saw the thing yeah was a midnight viewing the first time i saw the fog and assault on precinct 13 were theatrical viewings and every single time I've struggled to stay awake, <laughs> my eyes rolling in the back of my head as I'm willing myself to get to the next scare gag because they're very iconic and well done. But I've always found his pacing a little dreamlike and lagging. The Fog yes. was another one I watched last year in a theater. And this was the same thing where like, I'm not going to disagree with you all this movie slowly paced, but I was sitting there on the couch at my house, it was a relatively early time at night. Yeah. I, I was struggling to stay awake to get to the good stuff. I guess what I'm saying is that the good stuff is worth the pacing issues. Yes. <laughs> like, there I, are some great stuff in here. I was going to say, there's some good stuff in here. Like, that's why I'm not in the I hate it camp. I'm in the, eh, I would watch it again, but it's not my favorite camp. And I, I like the way that both the scientific and the religious angle on what's happening are yes. both inefficient explanations yes. for just bad vibes uh-huh. like the movies that this reminded me of besides exorcist 3 but like movies that are just like yeah there is like satan in a jar as this like evil ooze like that is technically like a villain in which the is film. amazing but by the way but the real villain concept. is just like <laughs> that the vibes are off in that, like, Lovecraftian or cosmic horror kind of way. Yeah. So, like, it was reminding me of movies of, like, Messiah of Evil or Final Destination or um, The Happening or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. or the Annihilation, even. It's just, I like, was about to say, that uh, yeah. came to mind quite a bit. Um, specifically the it's book, like, but, yeah. But, yeah, it's like an evil environment where anything can happen. Um, and it, it, it explains it away, both with pseudoscience and pseudo-religion. Um, because it's kind of like... You know, my favorite part of like every haunted house movie is in the last 10 minutes where we've built up a lot of tension explaining why the house is haunted and like um, these characters, whatever grief they're going through that's about to be like confronted or reflected in the house. But finally, in the last 10 minutes of the haunted house movie, there's this moment where everything goes crazy. crazy. The cabinets start flapping around and like the ceiling turns into mush, the walls start bleeding and like chairs start, you know, flying at people's faces. Skeletons are clawing out of places. I love that moment where we stop trying to justify every gag and being like, well, the place is just fucked. Yeah. uh, Yeah, this, this church 
that they're explaining why things are fucked up in. They do take a lot of time laying that groundwork, but I really do feel like the final 20 minutes pays that off. A lot more so than, I don't know, something like The Changeling or um, The Others or something where it's just like a ghost revelation and not, you know, the laws of physics being defied every 10 seconds for for its own sake indulgence. I will say that I think it is interesting to have this centered on like scientifically minded people because I do feel like one of the big things like probably especially during this era is like science people being like, oh, that's not real, you know, like. I, I think this is very much an answer to like, I don't believe in ghosts and they're not scary because they don't exist, which I, I think is is kind of great and funny. I don't know. The idea of uh, having a ghost story specifically, or not a ghost story, but you know, a spooky story specifically to trap like science nerds is pretty fun. It's an interesting angle. I really like when people have like these hard held religious beliefs in movies and then someone tries to scientifically explain yeah. why it's happening. And then both versions of that are like incomplete. Yeah. Like they kind of need each other. And even at combined, like they don't fully explain what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way that really manifests in this one is in the shared dream that everyone has when they're on premises. Which, like they, they if you were to ask this, me, like, that is the, my, that's the most interesting part of the movie to me. And I cannot express I would why. agree. It's cool. I would agree. That is that is a very that is a cool thing that happens in this movie. It's very um Lathe of Heaven 1980. Oh like yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they're dreaming this like video art future 1999 that hasn't happened yet. Um and it's like this like ominous thing that they keep working towards where even if they prevent the anti-god from emerging from this mirror realm in the present, there's still this other thing that they're like having this prophetic visions towards that I think gives the movie this kind of undefeatable nihilism to it. It kind of feeds back into, like, once again, the themes of all three of these movies is very, like, there is this force, and even if you stop it here, you're just postponing it. Which, yeah, like you said, it's got, like, this nihilism to it, but I... And, like, personally, I'm not usually, like... I don't know, nihilism doesn't usually get me, but I think in this case, it's interesting and it's fun, Like, which is a weird thing to say about movies that are like, the world's going to end no matter what you do. I think nihilism is pretty appropriate for horror as a genre. Like, I don't want a triumphant ending in most horror movies. No, you're not, you're not wrong about that. I'm just saying, like, I generally, I generally find nihilists, like, boring and exhausting, but in horror... It's it's a fun time and it's interesting to have like a there is no hope here. Go back, you know. What I'm surprised to hear though is that the frustrating hurdle and Ali already kind of alluded to this earlier but like the frustrating hurdle for y'all is how slowly paced it is and awkward and like kind of clunky it is leading up to the payoff I of the know, ending. I know, it's so weird. But but what threw me off about it was in that opening hour when you're getting to know these people, I just found them like these kind of grotesque Reaganite bros. Like the yeah. the characters were really just not compelling in any way. Yeah. And if the movie was trying to comment on white boy sexuality and interpersonal relationships, um, I don't think it does it in any interesting way. I think it kind of just commented on science bros. But, you know, that might just be me looking at it yeah, that there's way a, there's a lot of misogyny where the women who are working you know working the computers, computers that yeah. interpret 
the biblical text into like ones and zeros like so people actually doing their jobs yeah yeah they get kind of like downplayed by the reaganite bros on the outside there's a lot of like homophobic stuff yeah. with this one asian guy in the mix yeah, too there is that yeah and he he literally ends up trapped in a closet yeah by women by the end of the movie yeah and there's a lot of stuff that's hard to read with like yeah the that aspect where he's in the closet and then on the outside of that closet people are transferring the demonic possession through these like bodily fluids um so like it kind of becomes this sort of makeshift aids allegory but I don't even think that's intentional, or at least it's not well thought out. Yeah. No, it's just as fucking half-baked as everything in this fucking movie. The Fair. whole The whole thing about um, God, and there's an anti-God, and it lives in the mirror dimension, and there's God is subatomic particles, and God wills all the particles, and there must be an anti-God who wills the antimatter. It's so fucking half-baked. The whole thing, it's, it's, it, it kind of even just gives up. It's like, oh, not that this movie needed that explanation. Sealed evil in a can under the church? That's fine. You don't need it That's to be more complicated great. than that. Yeah. Uh, but but instead, by making having adding this kind of faux philosophy and having Donald Pleasance there to like give the one really great performance about as as like this guy kind of losing his faith as he realizes that his entire religion was made up uh, in order for the engineers to send Jesus to us, like in Prometheus. The whole thing <laughs> is just, it, it really, I saw this movie for the first time, maybe like five years ago. I had gotten something that played a Blu-ray for the first time, and I went down to the rental store that we still had at the time, and I rented Prince of Darkness because I had never seen it, and I heard so much about it, and I remember all the advertisements for it on the Sci-Fi Channel when I was a kid. And then this movie, it's. It, I think that it's very brave of him to make a movie that say, takes place over the course of two days and mostly plays out in real fucking time. Yeah. But I was, <laughs> I was really surprised. I, I'm really surprised that, um, you know, both of y'all, this was your first time viewing, and that you walked away. We are not a group of people that normally hates on things. And so when I say like I actually hated this movie, I hated this movie. <laughs> I like it. And the, the things that you're describing as like half baked, I think play in its favor. Like the things that aren't explained about the anti God in any kind of, you know, satisfying way allow your mind to wander and fill in the blanks, especially the depiction of the mirror realm where it's this kind of like liquid world beyond our own. Um, I, I find that like kind of excites my imagination in, in like an unknowable Lovecraftian way. Uh, but the, the problem is that the movie is also Lovecraftian in like the kind of like yeah. racist, misogynist way as well, <laughs> which is like, uh, especially by the time it gets to like, what is this movie saying about AIDS? What is this movie saying about the homeless? Yeah. That's where it's like, I wish that stuff was better defined. So I wasn't thinking about those implications as much as I was thinking about antimatter and midi chloridians yeah. or whatever the fuck. Tachyons, excuse you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think. One thing, um, as is like a purposely, I think maybe uh, stubborn on my part reading of this movie, is I felt like none of the men could handle their Satan. Because, <laughs> like, all the women get possessed by Satan, and it's like, oh, hell yeah. But then the dudes, like, that one guy literally, like, stabs himself in the throat and, like, throws himself down the stairs. It's like, come on, you can't handle a little Satan? 
What's your problem? I think one of the weird things is that the men are possessed post-death. Yes. Right? Like, the women are possessed while they're still alive, and the men, every time that they're possessed, they get killed first. She snaps that guy's neck. Yeah. Um, and then he gets possessed, and then the guy who, like, slits his own throat, he does that after learning the truth, because he sees her, uh, he sees possessed Lisa doing the translation, and then he kills himself, and then becomes possessed. And he's the only one that's really, like, fighting back the whole time, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, it's interesting, because I'm just like, well, all the ladies get these, like, fantastical Satan powers, and, like, all these dudes are, like, nonsense bros. Uh, it, like I said, it's a purposely like dense like me reading a uh, reading of the of the movie, but I'm just like dudes just can't handle their Satan. That's all I'm learning. I think reading any particular political meaning into um, character dynamics is like a path to madness because, like Boomer was saying, this is kind of like a half baked. Yes, and and all of the politics is very facile as well. Yeah, but. I think it does reflect the politics of the era in a way. Like it just yeah. feels so firmly rooted in like Reagan and like Bush senior era yes. Republican politics. I don't know that it's commenting on that stuff, but it's kind of reflective of it in a way that if it's not interesting, it's at least definitive. Like it feels so rooted in its time. What is interesting to me maybe about that is that we are currently in an era where horror has very clearly defined politics and like mm-hmm. especially with the recent like quote-unquote elevated, elevated horror stuff it's like all about trauma and grief and stuff it's very metaphor first so like everything that happens in a script i would say get out is kind of like the, the main example yeah of this, i was gonna like, say that is the the poster child of quote-unquote elevated horror well I meant in the sense that, like, everything that happens on screen ties back to the central metaphor. Oh, yeah. So, like, there's nothing... It's it's such a tight script where, like, every single thing is driven by the main idea and nothing is unknowable within that paradigm. Where, like, I think when John Carpenter was making this movie, maybe he is commenting on AIDS. He's commenting on homelessness in the Reagan era. He's commenting on all these different things. But it's not like they live where he's trying to make a grand political point. He's just doing those things by happenstance because he's making a movie. Yes. In that time, he's commenting on these things by mistake, almost like it's like a time capsule more than it is a statement. And I think that might be more interesting in some ways. Like maybe it's not clear, maybe it's messy, but there's more room for interpretation and more like room to express something that's difficult to say in clear terms, which is why personally, like I find something like us or Nope more interesting than get out um, as Jordan Peele has yeah. been more loose in his screenwriting style. I think there's a good balance there that maybe this one does not achieve, but uh, I think once you start loosening up on the metaphor a little bit and express things visually and thematically that can't be summed up by a pure one-to-one metaphor in the dialogue that becomes more cinematic and dreamlike in a way that like I find transcendent uh, in a way that this movie couldn't be if it was like they live where it's very clearly saying what it's about at all times. Yeah, th- this movie isn't like difficult to penetrate because of the density of its narrative. It's uh, nothing in it really matters or makes sense. It's just like a collection of of gross out gags barely strung together. 
and it's stunning that this is not a student film. Like the fact that he made the thing before this is the thing that really blows my mind. That like this is this is like ten years almost after Halloween, which is such a like great and perfect movie. And then to come, th- this feels so phoned in and phony. Like all even the stuff like you were talking about with the people who are unhoused. It's not even that they were chosen because that allows some like creative metaphor in the narrative. It's just like, okay, this is a mostly abandoned neighborhood. So who would be in it that would be able to be corrupted by the presence of evil? I guess unhoused people. Like, I don't even feel like that's a commentary on anything so much as it is just like not very thoughtful. But doesn't that reveal how he thinks about unhoused people in that time of like, Reaganite economic boom in a way that's interesting. Oh God, I didn't realize we were going Barthas on this. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean though? Like it, it's not, he's not not using them in a purposeful way, but the way he uses them, I think reveals things about how he thinks about that class of people by mistake. Yeah. I think, I think just because that exists in this movie doesn't mean it's a good thing. I think is what, the ultimate uh, dividing line here is just because we can see like this weird uh, distinction between attitudes of the time doesn't necessarily mean that's great. I just think there's more room for interpretation and like yeah. um, picking it apart. There is. Than if I un- than if I understood what he was going for at all times. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think in some ways like student films and outsider art can be more interesting than something perfect like The Thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, I get it. Even though it. The Thing is technically a better movie, it doesn't necessarily mean it's worthier of analysis, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think that we are, as people looking back at art from this time, more accustomed to dealing with, uh, it's even like what we were talking about earlier with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That movie is going to be 19 years old this year. I remember being, you know, a late teenager in 2005 when that came out. And I remember just the like blatant underlying homophobia of that time where it was just like very casual to say shit like that. And so when we look back at things from the 80s, even other like horror franchise movies, that element of misogyny and sexism is often there. It's mostly demonstrated through making women get topless for these movies where that's that was like the, the big thing i noticed is like it's actually the dude getting topless this time i thought that was funny he gets real sweaty at one point too it's like something out of the the covenant or something and you know what life force is a better version of this style of movie too and that's all about watching a woman topless for as long as possible yeah i like life force feels more exploitative because it's so if you'll forgive the pun, naked and like it really <laughs> is, you know, and what its goals are. Whereas this one, it's like phoned in the movie, like phoned in the movie in every single way. Come on, the visual the stuff, visual is, stuff not phoned is not phoned in. in. No, the mirror Which realm, is why I'm into the, it. the fleshy gore, like there are some practically achieved works of visual art in this film. Yes, what they're you know, purposefully warped towards, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I have a hard time with that. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't say like production wise, it was phoned in. Maybe script wise, it was written in a hurry, but uh, maybe in a way that revealed some things about John Carpenter's brain that 
maybe aren't all pleasant, but you know, it's almost like pure id style writing. Uh, kind of like Inferno with D- Dario yeah. Argento, which came up earlier. It's like, this is coming from some subconscious part of your brain because you didn't put any, like, intentionality on the surface level of it. And I'm just seeing, like, little snapshots of dreams that you had. A new and, video and game a, came out. You couldn't pay attention. You're kind of a weirdo. You know? Sorry. I, I just love the fact that John Carpenter's, like, a, a gamer. Yeah. As far as, like, the Miyazaki grump um, reputation goes, like... John Carpenter is very openly grumpy in the same way, but he's basically like, yeah. I don't care who adapts my work. Um, fuck it up all you want, as long as the check clears and I get to smoke weed and play video games. Exactly. Which, I don't know. I don't know. For for some reason, that just gives me like this bizarre amount of joy. Where I'm just like imagining John Carpenter right now. Like If he were even to hear a snippet of us talking about it, he's just like, don't care. Okay. Turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it off. I'm about to get beat this level. One thing I do think is funny as far as like unintentional consequences of writing this very quickly goes is uh, the fact that the religious sect that is in charge of this satanic jar is called the Brotherhood Brotherhood of of Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, there's like a title card for like the sleeper awakens uh, with their sacred text says that and like. Um, yeah, I was also very sleepy watching this, even though it was yeah. not late at night. <laughs> yeah, I heard Brotherhood of Sleep, and I was like, I would join that. Yeah, sleep sounds nice. So the verdict sounds mixed. I'm hearing mild, muddled positivity from Allie and me, and yeah. then um, hatred from Boomer's side of the microphone. Yeah. Overt. Overt, Overt and Overt pure. Hatred. And, overt, and overt, Will Robinson. I really did go into this with an open mind where I was like, you know, I didn't like this the first time that I watched it, but maybe I started it too late. Maybe I was too tired. Maybe I was too hard on it. Maybe I had seen La Chiesa too recently. Maybe this and maybe that. And in fact, I hated it more the second time around. Wow. Ooh, you know, it's a good movie in that vein, too. I just saw Demons with like a live score. It's a good Italian. Yeah, that's that's what I, said. I, I said. Demoni earlier because that's how I think of it in the. Oh yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly because La Chiesa is technically the third Demoni slash Demons movie. It's just that that one takes place entirely in a church. At least it was written that way, and then I think maybe for rights reasons, it was not called you know Demons the Church. You know, it was called just La Chiesa the Church instead, which is funny because. It's once again the third film in a series um, with sort of a different title, just like uh, The Exorcist 3, where I think it's probably one of the better ones of those. What's interesting about La Chiesa, I mean, first of all, one of the few times Swamp Flux has been cited as a main source on Wikipedia, which I find very funny. <laughs> you reviewed that movie and it was cited as like an original text. Oh, no. Uh, I can't be a part <laughs> of the story. I can't be a part of the story. <laughs> I don't think it's on there anymore, but we were for a time. Wow. What I don't understand about that is like the first Demons movie is in a haunted movie theater. Um, and it's kind of like this movie. It's just like a loose collection of gags in this theater. And then the second one is like home video horror. So like it's the same demonic possession thing, but the demons come out of like people's TV sets in this apartment building. What the fuck's going on in the church in the third one that connects it to the first two? That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, uh, I'm i not sure exactly, but like, you know, from from the film's page, 
It was originally conceived as the third installment of the Demoni series. Fascinating. And he rewrote it to remove any connection. Uh, Suave, Michelle Suave rewrote it to remove that connection. So Maybe the church had like a closed circuit TV that became haunted at some point. Um, but also Italians have a very interesting approach to sequels that's very loose on copyright laws. Yeah, that's a very just, like, kind say... way to put it. Control <laughs> 2. Yeah. <laughs> They're... Um, Steamboat willying everything all the time forever. Once again, Troll 2. Yeah, uh, Zombie, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead that spawned its own parallel franchise. What's really funny to me is we've named like probably like two dozen movies in relation to this one. Yeah. Um, and I would think I would say they were all more interesting and worthy of discussion than this film is. And I still like this. <laughs> I, I agree with a, a large part of that, sex, that, that statement. <laughs> Satan is real Working in spirit You can see him And hear him In this world Every day Satan is real Working with power He can tell